podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny and with me as always is my co-host Nick. Hello, hello, hello. The premise of our show is very simple. For each week we have carefully picked two films which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find where their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, golden age of Hollywood, and the other is chosen by my co-host, which is from their specialty. So that would be anything from uh, 1970s New Hollywood through to the current blockbuster age that we're living in. Cool. The only rule is both picks of the week have to be first time viewing for the other person. So today's episode is centered around musical comedies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, musical comedy. It's a bit of an odd, odd matchup today, I think. Um, but we'll get onto that. I, I yeah. have a feeling we'll get onto this odd matchup. Um, I, I, and on paper, it seemed to, it seemed, it looked to work. Um, I think it did. And it might take some, it might take some work to kind of make this work in the podcast. But um, I have a, f- yeah, no, I, yeah, I, yeah, I have a feeling there will be a lot of politics discussed in this podcast through both through both films through both films uh, yeah through both films that's quite surprised that was one of the surprising things um like the the common through thread with both films was how it was was the politics involved yeah um and the fact that both both are uh, uh comedies and that both are in fact musicals yes um um more on that in a minute. So let's start with my pick of the week, um, Gold Diggers of 1933, um, released in 1933, directed by Mervyn Leroy. So um, chorus girls Polly, Carol and Trixie are ecstatic when they learn that Broadway producer Barney Hopkins is putting on a new show. He promises all the girls parts and even hires their neighbor, Brad, an unknown composer to write some of the music. There's only one problem. He doesn't have the money to bankroll it. The problem is solved when Brad turns out to be quite rich, but he insists that he will not perform. When opening night comes, the juvenile lead cannot go on, forcing Brad to take the stage. He's recognized, of course, and his upper crust family wants him to quit. When he refuses, they tell him to end his relationship with Polly or face having his income cut off. When Brad's snobbish brother Loris mistakes Carol for Polly, the girls decide to have a bit of fun and teach him a lesson. So Nick, what did you think of the movie? So this is this is my actually this is actually my second Busley, Busby Berkeley musical, um, believe it or not, after Forty uh, Second Street. Yes. Um, which I saw last year. Um, and even though... So this is going to sound like I'm starting off on a negative, but I'm really not. Um, even though I, I really did enjoy Gold Diggers in 1933, I, I do prefer 42nd Street over this. Um, I think one of the reasons is is that through the course, like 42nd Street is very much focused on the backstage elements of... Um, putting on a film and and well not putting on a film putting on a stage production sorry um and cast your mind back to a couple of weeks ago where we talked about all that jazz and what that film does is there's a lot of like similarities between all that jazz and 42nd street which is probably why i like 42nd street quite a bit and then obviously it has the grand like uh musical number the, the 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 atypical busby berkeley musical number at the end um and I honestly, I felt I feel Forty Second Street to be a better like narrative piece of cinema than this. However, um, I feel that you know this film it doesn't. It, I don't think it goes as 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 big or as grand as Forty Second Street, 
until until the end um which i i think is to be honest the probably the point of the film um so which which from what i can gather would be to show how the great depression impacted those who are you know not at fault for the great depression um you know, you've got the girls in question, Polly, Carol and Trixie, you know, they're about to perform in this big show and then the creditors come in, you know, and they shut the show down and, and then they've kind of just, we see them afterwards just kind of struggling with not working, you know, not getting up for an alarm, stealing milk from next door and just kind of being generally fed up by by the situation. Um, which kind of, until the end, it, it kind of like bugged me a little bit that, this was how they were going to show people coping through the Great Depression, but I'll get I'll get onto that in a minute. Um, you know, and the way that the way the film goes is, you know, that they then the neighbor, you know, is heard playing this piano, and it, it kind of and then sets up the plot to do with the the the, the new musical number. There's you know mistaken identity and and love involving that. There's gold digging. There's drinking. There's bribery. There's you know tricks being played and it's all a bit it it is it does have this kind of screwball comedy uh, screwball comedy element to it but to go back to 42nd street it wasn't as witty as 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 that um i thought the interplay between the showgirls um Lawrence and Fanny was um i thought was quite interesting um it's at times quite weird and a and pretty screwy at the same time um so like basically the whole kind of film just it kind of just goes at this pace and i don't i don't want to say it didn't grab me because i, I did really really enjoy enjoy it but it just felt that there wasn't much um almost co cohesion to it however I felt like the film was was pretty much just waiting to get to that final number, um, and uh, the, the final number in question, uh, the Forgotten Man uh, thing, it, it was it was pretty incredible. Um, the yeah, like I said, the Forgotten Man number, it, it's really politically charged. Um, and it's full of reference to the plight of America in the early 30s. It kind of ended up um, revising my thoughts on how the film was portraying those that suffered through the Great Depression. It actually showed some proper political um, statement, which was quite surprising considering this is a studio film. Um, Warner's, am I, am I thinking that it's right? It's a Warner's yes. film. Um, it's a Warner's film. Um and yeah, the, 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 this 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 ending number. I mean, I don't really have much to add in terms of like choreography because it's all kind of just self-explanatory. You know, you know, if you if you know your Busby Berkeley musicals and 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 you um, do if if and I I I do. I mean, I've seen two now, so I know you know. <laughs> um, there's also you know I've spoken in the past about how um, uh, Indiana Jones: The Temple of Doom has this incredible opening number at the beginning, which is just a Busby Berkeley musical number um, and the greatest film of all time uh, Gremlins 2 has an actual Busby Berkeley number in it starring Gremlins um, and you know it, it you know what to expect it's it's something that breaks all convention and breaks the space of the film basically it's like there's this stage and then there's the stage in in echoes and it just echoes and goes and goes and goes um and the 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 yeah that uh, that final number i mean it's it's incredibly impressive it, it's it's almost like a really quite depressing note to kind of end on it, it it shows soldiers going to war and then coming back to going back from war and then it shows them on the streets and the soup kitchen and, it, and it's it's on you know it's like this politically charged statement that I was talking about and and then it kind of uh, at one point it turns into like proper German expressionism at one point you know something you yep. kind of expect out of a Fritz Lang movie and it, it, that that took me aback I was like whoa where did that come from um 
so yeah, I mean, all in all, I mean, I kind of feel like I'm kind of rushing through this, but I don't really have much to say that's critical of the film because I did enjoy it. Um, like I said, I thought like the whole plot and stuff was kind of just almost preamble just to get to this final number. So, um, so you had no thoughts on John Blundell or um, I, Ruby I, Keeler I, 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 or sorry. Ginger Rogers? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, no thoughts. I'll go. Right, okay, I'll, I'll track. I'll track back a little bit then. So, um, Polly, Carol, Trixie, and uh, Faye, the, the the four showgirls, um. It was, I mean, I saw Ginger Rogers before in uh, 42nd Street and I thought she was much, much better, much more utilised in that. I don't think she has much of a part in this. Does she? Like, she's not really that much. Well. It's more. She was, I mean, she does open up the show with the dance number, singing number, Wearing the Money, which I, th- I thought was a brilliant. Yeah. Punchy yeah. opening. I, I, I saw... I saw that opening and I was like, oh, so that's where that song's from. That is where that song <laughs> is from. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, like, just in terms of, like, her role in the film as in the narrative, like, she wasn't really involved in the, in the you know, tricking of, of Lawrence and, and Fanny. And yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, she was, was kind of an outsider because she didn't live in the same house with the three girls. And if you think about it, the three girls, the, their performance, their Sort of personalities are already quite big, so I don't think there was room for yet another one. Yeah, I, I, I their performances were, were really excellent. Um, uh, Joan Joan Blondell as as Carol was, I mean, she she was really really quite something. I mean, she reminded me of, um, was it? I'm gonna get a slap if I get this wrong. <laughs> Was it? It was. It was Jean Harlow in Red Dust, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes. So she reminded me of Jean Harlow in Red Dust with the, you know, the kind of sassiness. But about she's much her. cuter. She is. <laughs> yeah, she is. Um, and then uh, you know, I thought Trixie played by uh, Aline McMahon. Uh, McMahon. 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 Um, Mahahan. Yeah. She was really, really good. Um, uh, Ruby Keeler as Poppy. You know, she was really quite cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, in yeah, like almost like this this girlish quality to her. And I thought her and um, uh, Dick Powell. Um, you know, they 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 made a really quite um, interesting interesting couple. And obviously, I recognised him from from Forty Second Street as well. He was in Forty Second Street um, as well. Yeah, that's what I mean. Dick Dick Powers in that's what I mean. Yeah, Dick Powers in Forty Second Street. Yeah, um, and Ruby Keeler. Yeah, no, Ruby Keeler. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, no, I, I the performances were were really 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 good, and I don't really i just said i just don't i don't i, what, I feel what really was bad your favorite, i don't really have much more so I, I assume your favorite dance song number was the forgotten man um just to refresh I'm, your memory I'm, there are four um, sort of major ones there's the wearing the money there's petting in the park yeah. there's um um shadow waltz and the forgotten man i think petting in the park was perhaps my favorite number and yet you've um, not said anything about it so far <laughs> yeah I, I so so yeah so that one got really weird um and i think that's probably why i kind of liked it there was um i had seen it before um as a you know just out of context i had seen that musical number before um and it you know it gets it gets quite weird you know the rain comes down and the, yes. then they go and get changed and the screen comes down <laughs> and it's this is a pre-code movie yes. and i was like yes this is this is a bit mm-hmm. and then there's there's a a pervy kid, kid and it was like that that kid is is really really quite pervy um and yeah, no, I I think I I enjoyed that musical number, and then it and, and then it kind of then got me thinking about the logistics of wearing, you know, like the metal 
you know, yeah. the metal garments that they have. <laughs> and obviously, you know, meant to sing the chastity belts. And then obviously, like, one of them, Dick Powell ends up having a can opener. And I was <laughs> the like, kid gives him the can opener, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I was like, that, that's that's a bit loaded. <laughs> what the um, hell? <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, and, I, and then and then I thought and then I thought that must be really sharp. Like, be careful of her back. Don't don't hurt her back. Like, you're opening. Oh, uh, it just uh, it, it was a bit it was a bit really quite weird. Uh, but no, I I did I did really like that petting in the park one. Um, I thought the shadow watch was really quite cool with the 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 violins. Neon violins, yeah. Um, I thought that was I thought that was really quite cool. Um. But yeah, no, I. They they are really like they are really really good numbers. That's what I mean. That they are really quite big numbers, and um, they all kind of like I said, they they they're kind of leading up to this massive thing at the end, you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I I I did. I did I did really like this. I did I did cool. I did. Cool. I'm hoping you. Took I'm you a while got, to, like, really to admit interesting... it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I'm really hoping you've got some interesting backstory. I do. I imagine there is. Have I ever given? Yeah, I've never let you down so far, have I? Whenever you expect a, no, a juicy no. story based on 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 like the production stories, I always sort of. That's what I mean. If there if there's a film made before 1950, or no, actually, correction. If there's a film made before 1962. Which is when Baby Jane came out. Then that there's there's always there's gonna be something going on. Um. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories um, on on this, and I just I had quite a few notes because I think this is a film that has a lot. There's so many stars in this film, and for people who who are familiar with with the pre-code era and the golden age of hollywood era they will probably recognize just like you said you recognized dick powell you recognized ginger rogers robbie keeler um i have a few things about her as well so are you are you all kind of done with your notes on this yeah i'm 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 hoping i can interject with random thoughts yes of of course of course Um, uh, so yeah, I'll just start with Ginger Rogers because she's like a, she's like kind of the first person you see as the movie begins. Like that big, huge, like extreme close up of hers is just great. And I was reading this some someone saying that it's very hard to for actors to sort of act so close to the camera, and she does it without flinching, and she does it in in pig Latin as well, <laughs> uh, which is quite funny. Uh, in this, she was just starting out. Well, she had—I think she had a few credits to her name, but it was before she made her first Roger, Roger Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire film called *Flying Down to Rio*, which is again pr- probably as much as much of a precode as this one. Um, yeah, so check it out. I found this quote from um, Danny from Precode.com. He's got a website and he says, this thing has more bare links than a Rockettes review. I'll share the link in, in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, I think Ginger Rogers, she... Um, she was uh, she was rehearsing for um, the War in the Money number and she began goofing around singing in Pink Latin. And the studio executive, Daryl Zanuck, overheard her and suggested that she do it for real in the movie and i thought that was quite a strong opening number because it just sort of deals with if you listen to the lyrics there are very, it deals a lot with like dignity and having to having enough money to pay the rent and that's kind of what people needed they didn't need much more than than, than just that so it the vibe in, in terms of like dealing with depression is is just real um and yeah I loved, I like Guy Kiwi, he's great fun, he's always a win, he's been adorably gullible in this film, as well as in many other pre-code films, like Blonde Crazy, Taxi, Dames, uh, which is another, Dames and, yeah, I, I think Dames is also one with Busby Berkeley, and he's also been in Rain with great John Crawford and many, many more, so if you're if you're interested in pre-code, you, chances are you've seen it. You've seen him, Bob. 
pop up. Um, Ned Sparks playing Bernie, um, the show director, his face is, I loved him, he's so expressive that he's always great fun to watch, especially with that big cigar on his face and the big hat. Uh, there's an in-joke about play about Dick Powell because he, um, if you remember, the guy he replaces on opening night, he says at one point he's been playing juvenile um, lead boys for 18 years. And that's kind of a joke directed at Dick Powell because Dick Powell is known to have played during the 30s and early 40s quite a lot of um, juvenile like youngsters in movies. He was typecast in the 1930s as a youngish, crooning, leading man. But he managed to ditch the persona in the 1940s when he turned to noir films. And he did a film based on Raymond Chandler's M M Murder, My Sweet. And um, a funny story that he was... Um, because he was paired and he had such good chemistry with, with Ruby Keeler... Um, people, uh, like the audiences in those days, thought that they were an item. So when he married John Blondell in 1936, people thought that Blondell stole him from Ruby Keeler. Um, but Ruby Keeler was married to Al Johnson, whom you probably know from the first ever sound film, The Jazz Singer. And uh, yeah, Ruby Keeler, she was... I think she was her eldest of her, she was, she had one of those upbringings where she had to work from the age of 14. So she was very much working class and she learned to tap dance from an early age and she basically supported her whole family through tap dancing. And I found this really interesting quote from her about her stardom years in the 1930s. And she says, it's really amazing. I couldn't act. I had a terrible singing voice. And now I can see I wasn't the greatest top dancer in the world either. Um, I think she did. I, th I don't know. I, th I think she did really okay. She usually plays the like talented new discovery during... During the like 1930s alongside Dick Powell. And it was, it was surprising for me to, to find out that she was... Um, putting herself down because I thought she was more capable than she gave her herself credit for. Um, Aline McMahon steals every scene she's in, I, I think, as Trixie. And she is perhaps the only self-confessed gold digger. Um, because, you know, Carol and Polly, they kind of fall in love with, with people without thinking of money. But she basically thinks of money first. And it just made me think a bit of, um, I know you're going to like this. Uh, she made me think of Greta Gerwig's Amy because she understands money and, and how it helps in, in a relationship. And a woman has to marry well or starve. And I think, well, mm. <laughs> things in 1933 were slightly, well, I don't know if they were slightly better for women, but we, we want to believe they were, especially that they were, perhaps more sexually empowered and they could get away with more than, than in the 1860s. Um, but yeah, that was about to change with the Hayes Code because with this film, this film is proof that they were trying to push it as hard as they could with numbers like Petting in the Park and they couldn't get away with it. They almost got away with it, but they couldn't get away with it for too much longer. Uh, already in 1934, the Hayes Code got enforced strictly and you couldn't see numbers like petting in the park anymore um warren william playing lawrence um dick powell's brother i think he is amazing i really really love him i think he's just one of those actors that he doesn't he doesn't need to do anything he just has to be there and he's good um other than in 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 this film he shines in films like smarty goodbye again and of course employees entrance which i highly recommend i think employees entrance is his best role he was uh, named the king of pre-code and for good reason i think the chemistry between him and john blondell in this film is almost unparalleled except maybe blondell and jimmy cagney and maybe we can squeeze a film with jimmy cagney on later in our podcast because i think I don't think you've seen many Jimmy Cagney films, have you? 
No, the, 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 the only Jimmy Cagney I saw was, uh, I'm going to have to get the name right, otherwise I'm going to go, <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on, Angels with Dirty Faces. Okay. There we go. Got it right. Yeah, I really like Warren William. Um, and yeah, I think his chemistry with John Blondell is just amazing. And I, I like you said, I think she's really good at it. She's beautiful, she's energetic, she's sassy, she's adorable. She doesn't do her own singing in the Forgotten Man number, and I just wanted to say that I found this interesting information about the the girl who actually does the singing. Her name is Etta Martin, and she's seen briefly singing the chorus while sitting by the windowsill in in the sort of high up in on the stage. An interesting fact: she has a small credit in flying down to Rio as quote unquote the colored singer according to imdb and she lived to be 102 i think she died in january 2001 and etta martin became the first african-american stage and screen star to sing and perform at the white house at the invitation of president and mrs franklin d roosevelt in january 1933 and i think her voice makes a whole forgotten man number what it is um so speaking of roosevelt he was the one who coined the term forgotten man to define the uh, first world war veterans who um rebelled against the hoover administration in 1932 um apparently the Hoover administration had forgotten that the veterans from the First World War was, were promised bonus, bonuses, but never given them. So they were very hard hit by the Depression. And I found a, a Roosevelt speech, which I will share in the show no notes, because I think it's it's quite important and tied in, in politically with, with what um, Gold Diggers of 1933 is trying to do. Because I think you've, you've mentioned that it, it's made... The Warner Brothers studio and the Warner Brothers studio were quite um, in tune with what was happening in, in the world so the film is politically charged as most of the Warner Brothers films that were at the, t at the time so if you've seen you probably haven't but um it's like like I'm I'm a fugitive from a chain gang heroes for sale these are all very like gritty realism films made during the pre-code era and they were all made at Warner Brothers. I think what Jack Warner was doing at the time was he was kind of scanning the newspapers to find a story to make into a film. Um, that was kind of this practice. The director of this film, Marvin Leroy, who was actually involved with Ginger Rogers at the time, um, he said once, and I quote, because he had a very like um, working cl class upbringing, um, he said, I met the cops and the whores and the reporters and the bartenders and the Chinese and the fishermen and the shopkeeper. I knew them all. I, ne I knew how they thought and how they loved and how they hated. When it came time for me to make motion pictures, I made movies that were real because I knew at first hand how people behaved. So I think... I chose this film because I thought it was it was interesting to sort of relate things about the pre-code era and things about the depression and I think this film has them in spades. Uh so you have the innuendos and like nudity, a lot of a lot of skin. Uh but there's a lot about the struggle to survive especially in show business which uh was quite hard hit. Um and yeah, this brings me to Percy Berkeley. I think he he was sometimes criticized for making women like props, like using women as harps and like waterfall statues. And I think you you've seen that in like Foot, Footlight Parade, Forty Second Street. But looking at this, it made me think of like the beauty he portrayed on screen, and it feels like it remain it remind. I know it doesn't really make sense, but it, bear with me. Do you remember in? Day for Night, the François Truffaut film, you have Jean-Pierre Leo keep asking asking a question. Yeah. 
Do you remember that question? No. He said he asks everybody, "Are women magic?" Oh yeah. And it just made me think that maybe Busby Berkeley thought that women women were magic, and he made them look like magic because what he made was kind of like magic, putting women into that like kaleidoscopic sort of imagery. And yeah, I thought Petting in the Park was fun, very fun. I, I don't know if I could pick one number. I think probably Forgotten Man because it's so poignant and so it's probably the like a comes like a punch at the end where you just don't even know where it came from and just stays with you for so long. And I have a really interesting story about the Shadow Waltz. It, I thought it was a bit of an odd one out because it just doesn't actually sort of tie in with anything else. But it has the, the visuals and the Buzzy Berkeley mark on it. Um, funny story, well, funny kind of scary story. An earthquake hit during the filming of the scene. At 5.55pm on March 10th, 1933, the Long Beach earthquake hit Southern California, measuring 6.5 on the Richter scale. The earthquake caused a blackout on the soundstage and short-circuited some of the neon tube violins. Berkeley was almost thrown from a camera boom and dangled by one hand until he could pull himself back up. Since many of the chorus girls in the dance number were on a 30-foot high scaffold, Berkeley yelled for them to sit down and wait for the, until the stagehands and technicians could open the soundstage doors and let in some light. You could imagine how dangerous that situation could have been, where anyone could have, if one foot wrong, they would have fallen off and hurt themselves. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I really like this film. It just makes me really, from the very moment I see Ginger Rogers' face singing Where in the Money, until the Remember My Forgotten Man number, I just, I, I love this film very, very much. The it, I found it memorable and bold and moving and, and funny and a bit risque. So yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. No, I, I, I did, I, I did enjoy it. I really, really did. Um, yeah. Um, no, that was that was quite interesting about the the earthquake and what have you. Yeah. Um, pretty insane, to be honest. <laughs> cool. Um, so, I, I enjoyed Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three. Um, so we're gonna 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 move on to our second film um you can probably tell there's a lot of apprehension in my voice um, <laughs> so i wonder why um the second film we are discussing today as you can probably tell from the title of the episode is team america world police uh directed by uh trey parker um of south park fame um written and written by uh, matt stone and trey parker um i've i've tried to find a plot synopsis that kind of does this is, insanity oh, justice is there a plot i had a notice so right i i what i've got is this is one on imdb that i found that that is relatively quite good so Popular Broadway actor Jar Gary Johnston is recruited by the elite counterterrorism organization Team America World Police. As the world begins to crumble around him, he must battle with terrorists, celebrities, and falling in love. Um, before I kind of ask Danny her thoughts, I have a quotation from uh, film critic uh, Scott Tobias on the AV Club that he wrote for his uh, new cult canon series um, that talks about the film. I'll link to the, the thing in the show notes. So it's, it's quite a, it's a, it's a good quote because it kind of sets up the film. So what have you got in 2004 when Parker and Stone made the bold, crazy decision to make a feature film populated in almost entirely by marionettes? You've got an America that had squandered vast reserves of global sympathy after 9-11, tackled terrorism with chest-thumping unilateralism, 
and allowed the likes of Jerry Bruckheimer and Michael Bay to vulgarise history with a little movie called Pearl Harbor. <laughs> You've also got crusading celebrity peaceniks, networks of evildoers seeking weapons of mass destruction, and a ronery North Korean dictator craving attention from other nations like a petulant ten-year-old. Throw all those ingredients in the plot in the pot, and you get the lumpy stew that is Team America World Police, a catcher's can satire in the Parker Stone tradition, meaning it's cutting, politically incorrect, juvenile in ways both sublime and stupid, and sometimes misguided and genuinely risible. One major plus, the songs are great enough to hold the whole shambling operation together. That's his kind of summation on the film, and I think it kind of perfectly sets it up yeah so danny what did you think of team america world police so i agree with a couple of points from that review i do think that the the song are strong enough to hold the whole plotless story non-story together i mean you you were saying about like gold diggers not having a proper plot but this doesn't really have a proper proper plot either it's just like something absolutely ridiculous that best left alone and not mentioned it just feels it feels like yeah there's just sequences that are one funnier and one more disgusting than the other um it just it i i completely you know what this is really strange i completely missed the whole 911 thing about it <laughs> i just completely didn't think about it. i thought oh here we go thank god for americans saving all the rest of us and i felt like you know ever since like world one two world war two they had these freedom fighter savior complex ingrained in in their dna uh but yeah i i like trey parker matt stone i liked south park i went and saw uh book of mormon and i really enjoyed it I like the satire of this. Um, I, it's it's not exactly something I I actively seek as in terms as as sort of comedy. Uh, but it's it's very cleverly done. It's very cleverly written. Um, one thing that I don't like is that they do that thing that sometimes American comedians do, which is to push the joke further and further until it stops being funny and but then it comes around to being funny again no no i just basically (laughs) the i will mention one scene when gary yeah gary gary goes and drinks himself and into a puddle of puke and i did not enjoy that i don't understand i really don't understand what is the what this toilet humor has to has has to stop i just (laughs) i just don't understand it what's so funny about someone being like so sick that you just see them be sick for like 10 minutes straight i understand he's sick but please stop no just just i think i I think the the joke with that is purely because it's a puppet. Like you, you can see he would have like, just died. It's, it's a ho- yes, I know, but it's it's like it's it's a puppet, and uh, I think that's where most of the humor of this film comes from. For me, is that they're puppets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and like I know, like seeing him throw up a little bit, I was like, oh, that's disgusting, and then it just kept happening, and it. It just got more ridiculous, and as it as that it it just kept going, it got more ridiculous. You got the spray of the, you know, you could sleep, clearly see it's a hose thing coming yeah. out. Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't look of... at it. I didn't look straight at it when I saw that started, like all the retching started to happen. I was like, okay, so I kind of like looked slightly to the left of it. I didn't look straight at it because I really did not want to. <laughs> No, that's that's fair. It's fair yeah. enough. It's fair um, enough. but yeah, I agree with the review that the music is the funniest bit of the film. Um, of course, the, it's very politically incorrect. It's very offensive portrayal of other cultures, but that is the point. Um, nobody speaks proper like Korean or Arabic. No one's. It's just gibberish. 
and Durka Durka Mahabaji Hat. Yeah, Durka ah, Durka Durka. Uh, yeah, what the? Uh, <laughs> I mean, the the opening sequence has more like it's just like f- f- they just try to jam in all the French stereotypes into one frame. <laughs> did you did you catch did you catch the um pavement? Yes, pattern? I will move to pa- I, 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 I will the... talk. I will move to Paris in two weeks, and I will be very very disappointed if I don't find the streets paved with croissants. They have to be paved with croissants. I mean, what what is the point? <laughs> <laughs> the little boy singing Ferro Jacques. I know well. that's just, just like that. <laughs> It's funny how they're just like, yeah, let's just destroy in in the quest for freedom and freedom from terrorism. Let's just destroy all the important monuments because we're Americans and we fight for freedom. Um, yeah, and which is which is quite close to the truth, really. Yeah, really yeah. I mean, I don't understand this obsession with freedom. There are so many other countries that do freedom much better. And they're really free. <laughs> I was just, yeah, this is baffling. And I, I mean, I enjoy, I like how clever they've they've done it, how cleverly they've done it. Um, It wasn't a bad film at all. But I just, I don't know, I think others, I was just thinking others did satire and like making fun of their own American stereotypes slightly better. Or in the case of Dr. Strangelove, much better. Um, I loved, I mean... I thought True Lies was better in terms of like making fun of like the idea of being a terrorist attack. And yeah, I appreciated the humor, the soapy love story. And yeah, it's it's cleverly written. I like the idea of patriotism being a risible concept because it should be. We should not be hung up on nationalism like nationalism especially in this day and age um but yeah i was ready to like this because i knew some of the other work from trey parker and i I liked it i think i had some three or four good laughs so yeah i enjoyed it that's honestly made me so happy Um, but yeah that's really really happy what um so you asked me in in the the talk about gold diggers about what my favorite song is what's your favorite song in team america um i think the montage song even rocky had a montage yeah yeah i think that one was my favorite and of course you know america fuck yeah (laughs) did you did you listen through the credits no should i have so if you listen i probably will i'll probably have to there's an extent yeah, there's an extended version of that song where he starts listing off like things from America and they go, fuck yeah. So um, it's like uh, fake tans, fuck yeah. Walmart, fuck yeah. Slavery, fuck yeah. yeah. And then it just like gets more insane. Oh, I really like <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah. what was it? It was like, I, I need you or I need you like Ben Affleck needs acting lessons or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> and Pearl, that... Pearl, Harbor, Pearl Harbor sucked and I missed you. Yeah. Oh yes, Pearl Harbor um, sucked and I missed you. <laughs> I missed I missed you more than Michael Bay missed the mark. He really screwed up that film. Yeah, that was um, funny too. I need, I need you more than uh, Cuba Gooding needs a bigger part. He was much better than Ben Affleck. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the, I mean, let's just say that Ben Affleck's redeemed himself in recent years with his career and his direction. So, one of one of one of my favorite South Park recurring South Park jokes is the fact that Ben Affleck is Cartman's hand. Um, at one point, like, um, no, it wasn't. No, it was Jennifer Lopez was was Cartman's hand, and yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so um, actually, in in uh, a little back, like, there is a deleted scene. Um, of Ben Affleck in this film, um, but instead of a puppet, he is just a hand with a face on it. Oh, poor Ben Affleck! Um, and I really, which just is just the the greatest thing ever. Um, so yeah, I, it, is is that it? Have yeah, you, that's you yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, so yeah, I. So for the for those that don't know, um. This film, this film kind of started life after Matt Stone and Trey Parker heard about 
the Thunderbirds movie that was going to be made in the early 2000s that ended up did get made by um, Star Trek's uh, Jonathan Frakes. Um, and then they were profoundly disappointed, like I was, um, that it wasn't with puppets because that's Thunderbirds. Um, they then... The, the, the story goes that they then read the that um, the day after tomorrow had been sold to 20th Century Fox based on the single pitch line of sudden global warming attacking the earth what um sorry sudden global warming attacking the earth which is which is the pitch for the day after tomorrow oh. um yeah so they found what they did is they found that incredibly funny and just completely insane which it is it's just an insane thing um and then so initially they wanted to make a shot for shot parody of the film featuring puppets because they got hold of a copy of the script right um and they wanted to call it the day after the day after tomorrow and release it in cinemas the day after the roland emmerich film <laughs> But, unfortunately for all of us, uh, their lawyers advised them against it due to legal repercussions. Well, you could, you could imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the title, though, The Day After the Day After Tomorrow, did actually end up becoming a South Park episode where global warming um, attacks the town. Um, and it's, it's, quite a really, it's a really good episode. Um, anyway, so the the script that they kind of ended up writing um, in the early 2000s, um, the first version of the script actually was written before the Iraq War in 2003, which is quite interesting. Um, they one what they ended up writing was kind of like a send up of the Jerry Bruckheimer films of the 1980s and 1990s, um, and you kind of see that the final film ends up kind of commenting on, you know, action movies, and then obviously due to the political kind of arena at the time you know american foreign policy and um the kind of i don't want to say influence of hollywood actors because if i don't know if you can cast anyone can cast their mind back to the the brighter days if you can call it that of 2004 2005 um and 2003 but you know there were a lot of hollywood you know i'm quotation here but liberals kind of you know speaking out against american foreign policy at the time so that you know they they make fun of that you know with the the film actors guild yeah um which is the greatest acronym ever um it 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 made me i know it's incredibly i didn't understand understand why they did that because it, it felt like a contradiction in terms for me because they were also part of that world and they were making fun of something that was in in essence something they would they were standing up for yeah but the, 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 i think it's just purely because they can take the piss out of themselves okay um like the whole musical thing like you know they are big fans like Trey Parker is, you know, he bloody wrote a fucking musical and yet he takes the piss out of musicals in, you know, the South Park episode Broadway Brodown. Bro um, I think it's just showing, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we can take the piss out of pretty much anybody. We don't give a shit. It's just funny, you know. Mm. Um, so I, I don't, there's a few bits I kind of want to touch on um, to do with the making of the film. Um, so firstly, like the marionettes, um they took three people to operate um with when and an example of it kind of how difficult they were um one just taking a drink uh took almost half a day of shooting um and because of the just the hard work that took into making the film and, and trey parker's attention to detail um an example being uh king jong-il's glasses were actually prescription glasses um the well, there's a miniature uzi which apparently cost a thousand dollars to actually make because it, it's 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 just it's just insane um and the film kind of barely hit its release date as a fully completed film um kind of on the puppets themselves um what did you think of the matt damon puppet um i didn't think it was funny <laughs> okay 
So I didn't basically. I let's it's... just say that I didn't think any of the making fun of the actors was particularly funny. Right. Um. I don't know why. I just didn't. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I no. I didn't find it funny at all. Okay. So so the Matt the Matt Damon puppet, um, who can only say two words, um, ended up basically they they did it. Um, they they put him in the oven, the puppet in the oven, and it came out, and it just looked a bit wrong. So instead of redoing the the puppet, they just <laughs> made him mentally handicapped. Um, uh, yeah. So um, on on kind of the actors' portrayals, um, Alec Baldwin has come out and said that he loved his portrayal of the film. Um, the way King John Eel says Alec Baldwin, um, apparently his kids quote that to him. <laughs> um, uh, George George Clooney has said that he would have been insulted if he didn't feature in the film um, <laughs> because he is actually friends with Matt Stone. He actually appeared in the South Park uh, movie. He was actually in an episode of South Park. Um, uh, one of the early, early episodes is Cartman's, I think it's Cartman's dog. Can't remember. Um, and he voiced the doctor in South Park, the movie that replaces Kenny's heart with a baked potato. Um and then Matt Damon, um, who along with Clooney is actually said to be friends with Stone and Parker, uh, actually ended up being quite confused towards his portrayal. Well, yeah, well, um, I mean, if I hadn't known just... the story that you just said, I would. That's why I was like, "What?" Because it doesn't actually reference anything at all. No, it does. It doesn't. But like, I, 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 I he's just honestly, he's just quite confused by it. Um, so the, the one person, however, who, who really didn't like his portrayal in the film was Sean Penn, um, who is kind of has this monologue at one point saying about how Iraq has rainbows and is a utopia. Um, yeah. poking, bas- basically, because they're, what they're doing is they're poking fun about Sean Penn kind of going to Iraq all the time and, and coming out and saying all these things about Iraq. Um, and what he did, it was he ended up Sean Penn ended up writing a letter, an angry letter to Stone and Parker, um, inviting them to Iraq with him, and then ending with the words "fuck you." Um, That's, that is, is that is a lot. Funny. That is very much like Sean Penn. Yeah, um, the the Michael Moore puppet um, being blown up. Um, so that came about because um, because of Bowling for Columbine. Um, so in that film, uh, for those that have seen it, uh, Michael Moore interviewed Matt Stone and Trey Parker and then put a cartoon after their bit that looked visually similar to South Park, except that it was a bit shit. And that actually really pissed Trey Parker and Matt Stone off um, because it made them look as though they had done this really crappy piece of work when in fact they hadn't. And they didn't get any kind of warning about what was going to happen. And, and so they were really pissed off with Michael Moore. Hence him getting blown up. Um. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I have a... I have a, 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 a... Kind of quote on Trey Parker... From Trey Parker on, on their fight with the MPAA. Which is the, the ratings board in America over the rating of the film. Um, purely examples where they they film things like they basically they they filmed stuff like Gary and Lisa defecating on each other purely to get the people there to watch the footage they had no intention of releasing it they just wanted these people to watch this footage because they thought it was funny um because they were really pissed off about how they were treated over South Park the movie um, the quote goes, um, it's back and forth with the board. They said it can't be as many positions, so we cut out a couple of them. We love the golden shower, but I guess they said no to that. But I just love that they have to watch it. Seriously, can you imagine getting a videotape with just a close-up of a puppet arsehole? And you just have to watch it. <laughs> um, which is, uh, it's again like links to the juvenile humour. And I think it's honestly quite funny because, you know, they they the way they were treated over the South Park movie I, I thought was quite quite interesting and the fact they actually got away with that title as well. We should um, have a bonus episode we should have a bonus episode on, on censors and the censorship stories that we that sort of emerged over the years. <laughs> uh, it would be quite interesting. I think it would um, be, yeah. 
So all because all because of this, we ended up getting, I think, the greatest BBFC rating of all time. Uh, the BBFC being the British um, Ratings Board, where their rating says, contains strong language, violence and sex, all involving puppets. <laughs> um, which, I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm just cackling inside. Um, King John Il, um was famously known to be a, a film buff. Yes. Um, but nobody kind of knows what he thought of the film. However, um, after the film was released in 2004, North Korea asked, uh, of all countries, uh, Czech Republic, to ban the film. Why the Czech Republic? Um, and the, I think it had something to do with the communist uh, thing going on in the 80s. Oh. Um, and then the Czech Republic just turned around and said no. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, I've just got one one other little story about kind of kind of linked with King John Il really it was just a bit of an insane story. Um so in 1978 this isn't direct this isn't linked to Team America I just think it's a really interesting story about Kim John Il. Um in 1978 South Korean director uh, Shing Sang Ok and his wife uh, Choi Yung Hee were uh, kidnapped by North Korea for the sole purpose of making films for the country. Um, the most famous of which was a Godzilla ripoff called uh, Polgasari, uh, which came out in 1978, um, which is, it's really bad. Um, and, and then in 1986, uh, Choi and Shin uh, escaped from North Korean supervision to a US embassy whilst in Vienna. Um, the story goes that they were chased through the traffic by the North Koreans and then they, they got on foot and then ran to the embassy um, which is a pretty insane story um, North Korea came out saying that they defected and ended up like laundering loads of money or something through their films wow. which you know isn't tr- is not true but it's a pretty insane story yeah um, so all in all like Team America uh, in my view is kind of like a really loving homage to the work of Jerry Anderson and you know Super Mario Nation um, I grew up watching Thunderbirds Sc- Captain Scarlet and, and Stingray um, I'm, I, there's something about the miniatures and the puppets that kind of just makes me happy inside like it's just it's just this sim- like simplicity to it and it just kind of works um, so seeing this adult version of it kind of just makes me happy even more um like the blowing up of the panama canal in the film like it's this great miniature there's some really good miniature stuff going on um and it's i don't know it just kind of reminds me of the thunderbirds episodes um i don't know if you are familiar with the super marionation and jerry anderson stuff no i'm not are you familiar with thunderbirds do you know what thunderbirds look like no Okay, I'm gonna have to send you like a clip of Thunderbirds, um, with the intro. Thunderbirds had the greatest. Actually, all three of them had like Thunderbirds had the greatest intro with the countdown. Captain Scarlet was a really quite, it's almost quite scary. In fact, intro. Um, uh, Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons, and then Stingray had this really really catchy catchy theme song. Um, but they're all really 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 quite good. Um, like. I'm not just saying that through nostalgia. They were actually genuinely really good. Um, and then the, this film, you know, I think it's it's really, really funny. It kind of speaks to my juvenile sense of humour um, that I have. And no. I do agree with you. I d- Sorry? You don't have a juvenile sense of humour. I do have a juvenile sense of humour. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, that's, that's not, I'm not just, you know... I'm not just confined to 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 vomit and and poo jokes, you know. Like there there is more to me than that. Um, <laughs> I do I do agree with you. The film is it is a mess. I mean, plot wise, it is a bit of a mess, and <laughs> you know, it, it, the songs really do kind of hold it together. Um, but you know, it's got strong language. It's got violence. It's got sex. All involving puppets. Yeah, the sex involving puppets is really great. Very great cinematography. <laughs> it was actually um, yeah, I know. Shot um, the so the the cinematographer for Team America Bill. um is Bill 
Bill Pope, who um, uh, was the cinema, yeah, so cinematographer for The Matrix. He did Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Spider Man Two. Um, for Sam Raimi fans out there, he did Dark Man and Army of Darkness. Um, so yeah, like you know, and then he goes and shoots a film with puppets. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, no, I, I, I really, really like this film. I, I, I don't think it's as rewatchable as South Park. No, uh, South Park I don't think so. I uh, mean, I South enjoyed Park, South movie. Park the movie quite a lot. This was not as enjoyable. I mean, I, I can, I can sit through South Park the movie and and just quote it line for line as it's happening. Um. And Team America, I, I, you know, I can't do that with. I still enjoy some of the jokes and, and, you know, just the ridiculousness of it is just quite ridiculous. Um, I do have a little funny story to kind of end on. So this film came out in 2004. I think it was, it was late 2004 over here. So about November, December, I think it arrived over here. Um, my best friend uh, turned 15 in January 2005 and he persuaded um, an adult to take him to go see Team America um, and obviously you know I saw him the day after and I was like dude how was Team America because you know we 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 all watched South Park you know and, and we knew it was from the guys who made South Park and he was like honestly it was the most awkward experience of my life <laughs> um, and I kind of feel really bad for him that he got he saw the film you know but he had to sit next to an adult who didn't really appreciate the humor that was going on uh, and probably thought that it wasn't actually appropriate for a 15 year old to see um and i agree i think I'm, i think it's right i think this film is not appropriate for a 15 year old um but then it's it needs that sense of humor that a 15 year old can have really or a 30 year old in my case <laughs> So yeah, no, I'm really glad. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. And you had fun with I it. I did have I did have fun with it. Yes. I mean, Trey Parker, they're, um, they're good. They're good. They're clever people. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw the I saw the Book of Mormon uh, earlier this year, before things went to shit, and um, it was it was great. Yeah, it's oh, a good. It's, so it's good. a very good musical. Very very good. Um, and then, I mean, I've got to say that their works away from South Park it, is uh, really, really good as well. They did a film called, um, well, they starred in a film called Basketball. Um, oh, I, I remember seeing is, that one. Which is, I think it's really, really good. I think it's a really quite funny film. I saw it um, when I was very of, young. I don't know how I would feel about it now, but I remember <laughs> watching it and thinking it was a lot of boy humor. Yeah, it it is. It is a bit um but it also kind of com- that film kind of comments on the sports industry quite quite well um they did another film uh, one of their early films was a film called orgasmo um which is has a thing to do with mormons uh this mormon ended up getting doing porn um which is it's quite a funny it's quite a funny film um and then their first ever film was a film called cannibal the musical um which is is it's not a great film but it's got some it's kind of got the building blocks to what they ended up going on to do so yeah no matt stone trey parker um yeah i thought i i thought they they did something really quite special team america and i'm glad you liked it cool so what have you got on for next week um so next week we we are going down science fiction i think this is the first this will be the first episode where it's prime it's literally devoted to science fiction um it is like we had starship troopers which is you know sci-fi uh tokyo tribe is a bit you know futuristic kind of thing going on and i think that's kind of it like yeah, I mean, uh, Jason and the Argonauts is more fantasy than is obviously more fantasy than science fiction. So yeah, no, we are actually having our first first proper science fiction episode, um, an episode where I finally write a huge, huge blind spot. Um, I finally watch uh, 1927's Metropolis, directed by Fritz Lang. Yeah. Um, I feel my 
I can't believe I've never seen it. I, I, it's just one of those films I've never sat down and watched. So I'm finally writing this wrong. <laughs> and then we are watching it with uh, Alex Proyas's uh, Dark City from 1998. Um, that film um, has a really good cast list. I'll just run through a few of the names. Rufus Sewell, William Hurt, Kiefer Sutherland and Jennifer Connelly. Nice. Looking forward uh, to see that. A few of them few of the names in dark city um for listeners at home if you wanted to if you wanted to re-watch dark city we are watching the director's cut of dark city um because that's the best version that's, of the film that's the blu-ray um, you've got is it <laughs> that that is that is the one that is the one i've got i've got i've got for you yes cool. um and the metropolis we are metropolis we are watching the the one that came out um the 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 bfi release yes uh, like this ultimate version that had all the missing footage that they found in argentina i love those stories so that would be the one i really love those so that would be the one we're watching yeah no i'm I'm really looking forward to metropolis next week cool um so yeah that is all that's done for this week um it is so you can find me on the internet um my twitter is at nick s chandler um my website is superatomovision.com and you can find me on letterbox just search my name on letterbox yeah you should be able to find me um danny where can we find you on the internet uh you can find me on twitter at kino joan and my website is kinojoan.co.uk we've got our own podcast twitter which is uh kinatomic and our gmail which is keenatomic at gmail.com and so it's a thank you um, and a goodbye oh thank you for listening and a goodbye from me and a thank you for listening and a goodbye from me